Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Fiction. Science fiction. Horror. Fantasy, crime, LGBT, thriller. You have now entered the House of Mystery. With your hosts, Eric Shapiro, David North Martino, John Copenhaver, and our word on KCB 106.5 FM Los Angeles, 102.3 FM Riverside, and 1050 AM Palm Springs. Today we are going to be talking about Napoleon, A Life, and that's the book by Andrew Roberts, and we have the author with us. Thank you for being here, Andrew. Thanks very much for having me on the show, Al. This is great. Um, uh, how did what drew you into Napoleon's life enough to write a book about him? Um, I'd always been interested in him. I really, ever since I was a child, I think um, he was a uh, fascinating character to me. I think his ambition, his sense of destiny, uh, those um, aspects of him, pretty much the same as, as everybody else, I think. Hmm. Now, so... What was his background? Like, um, where, what was his ancestry? Where did he come from? He came from the Corsican aristocracy, um, a small island, of course, in the Mediterranean, uh, which wasn't um, famed for its aristocracy one way or another. It was a, uh, it was quite a rugged, mountainous area, and so uh, not the kind of place that naturally had a um, aristocracy. But he was somebody who came from the upper classes of that island, whose family had been there for 300 or so years before um, they moved from Florence in Italy. So um, it was an upper class, but, um, but actually very uh, poverty-stricken in, in terms of disposable income and cash. Wow. Now, was he religious? No, um, not really. He was... Uh, his father was a... Uh, enlightened. Um, he came from the, the sort of principles of the Enlightenment, which um, included those of Voltaire, which uh, was deeply uh, doubtful when it came to uh, to religious belief. 
So what can you tell us about his personality? What kind of a person was he? He was a profoundly um, driven man. He ha was very largely self-educated, but, um, but deeply educated. His father had a good library, and he read um, most of the books in it. He was somebody who uh, conformed to the overall beliefs of the, uh, of the, of the French Enlightenment, of, uh, of people like Jean-Jacques Rousseau, who believed that the um, day would come sooner rather than later when the ancien regime of the French... Uh, the French aristocracy and the, and the, uh, and the monarchy, the Bourbon monarchy, um, would be replaced by a much more rational and logical uh, system of government. Did he make friends quite well, or was he more of a loner? Yes, uh, he, he did have friends when he, was, um, when he was a young man, but as he progressed, and certainly as he became more powerful and, and important, he uh, really found that only the ones that were around him, the, the, the people that he, uh, he, he needed or he um, could rely upon or he actually could use for his political advancement, um, tended to, uh, to be the people he was closest to. He, he rather um, uh, saw friendship in terms of his own, uh, his own thrusting, uh, successful political nature. And so, what what rose him to such power? Like, what was it about him, and, and how did he get there? It was really um, military success. At the time of the French Revolution, he was in the French army, and uh, um, because he came from um, a he'd, he'd been uh, a cadet in the um, in the military academy in uh, France. Um, when the revolution came, and many of the aristocrats. Uh, left France or were guillotined, were, were executed because of their social class. He wasn't because he came, uh, as I mentioned, from Corsica, which didn't have such a, a sort of structural class system. And so he wasn't primarily thought of as an aristocrat. And so because he was successful in the early battles that he fought on behalf of the French Revolution, um, he rose very, very quickly to the rank, uh, from, from the ranks up to become a general by the age of 24. It was amazingly uh, a quick advancement. So um, what can you tell us? He, he got married and he had kids, correct? Um, well, not, not for some time. He actually didn't meet uh, uh, Josephine, his, um, his uh, first wife, until he was uh, until he was quite old and uh, until he was well quite old for those days at least thirty years old and um, and unfortunately uh, she was too old to have children by that stage so he didn't have children until his second marriage and then only one um, but he did have a couple of illegitimate children by uh, mistresses that he had once he had once Josephine had been unfaithful to him. Did those kids ever, um, did he accept them as his own, or did he sort of, you know, shun them? Um, neither. Unfortunately, he couldn't, um, he couldn't uh, accept them as, as his own because of the, um, the mores of the social um, the mores of the day. But um, he, uh, he, his one legitimate child, he very much um, adored. He made him the king of Rome, and, uh, and he... Uh, 
he tried to um, organize a system whereby he this this young lad could uh, take over and become emperor of France after he himself uh, had um, died, but uh, but it wasn't to be. So what was he like as an emperor, as someone that was leading the country? Was he very good with the people? Like what, what, what can you say best about him? He had a wonderful um, capacity with uh, with ordinary um, with ordinary people, especially soldiers. Um, he'd obviously uh, been this uh, junior army officer, later a senior army officer, and a very successful general. And so he was able to get on with ordinary people um, very well. Uh, in fact, he preferred them really to um, to officers. He was somebody who had a, a sixth sense, really, also with regard to administration, and uh, and this was one of his great great successes, in that he he reorganised France. France had obviously uh, suffered a debilitating revolution in 1789, and he became uh, the dictator of France in 1799, ten years later. And what he managed to do was to save the best bits of the French Revolution, really, and uh, get rid of the, um, of, the, of the bad bits, especially, of course, the guillotine and the reign of terror and the way in which it had killed 40,000 Frenchmen um, internally. So, so he was somebody who very much saw himself as, as father of his people. Now his image, um, we, we always see him, and nowadays uh, he's portrayed, a, he was a short man, and he had his hand in his, you know, in his chest jacket and all that. Um, is his image what we see it is, or was it something different? Um, well, he wasn't short for his day. He was uh, five foot six, which was the average height of a, uh, of a Frenchman of his age and class and background back in the... 19th century. It was early 19th century. It was um, very much because of the British. Uh, he, the, the British who opposed Napoleon pretty much throughout his uh, his reign um, caricatured him as a, being a small man. Um, the great uh, caricaturists of the time, um, James Gilray and uh, and Thomas Rowlandson and others. Um, they always made him out to be very, very small, but uh, in fact he wasn't, in fact. He, uh, he only put his hand into his uh, jacket pocket, as you uh, mentioned. Well, not, not the pocket, more the, um, more the, the, uh, the, the waistcoat, yes, the buttons of his, uh, of his, uh, of his waistcoat, because um, he was adopting the style of the Roman uh, emperors and, uh, and the senators of Rome when they were... Um, when you saw statues of them, they often had their hands like that in uh, in their togas, and he was consciously recreating the classical stance of um, of ancient Rome, and uh, and that was why he he stood like that. It wasn't to scratch his scabies or <laughs> keep his hands in his wallet or any of the other things that uh, yeah. since have been invented about him. Did he, did he really idolize Rome then and the Romans? Yes, very much. He saw the uh, the obvious prerec uh, precursor of the French Empire that he was trying to create as that of the um, of the Roman Empire, in a sense. And he called the, his his upper house the Senate, and he uh, adopted the eagle, um, and uh, and of course he called himself uh, emperor. He was a, um, a a great historian. He was fascinated by history. Really interested in. Uh, 
in the past, and he saw Julius Caesar as his uh, as his um, sort of greatest uh, um, hero, along with possibly Alexander the Great as well. And uh, that was why, really, he he chose the uh, the imperial metaphor. Now, how how did he? Um act with the church, that he wasn't religious. So did he have a lot of run-ins with the, uh, let's say, the Catholics or anybody at the time? Well, he didn't at the beginning. His, uh, in fact, he was the one who, because the, the French Revolution was a profoundly atheist construct uh, and had banned Christianity, um, made it illegal, closed all the churches, he was the um, person who, in his concordat, as it was called, with the Catholic Church in 1801, um, turned all that upside down and allowed um, allowed the churches to be reopened, allowed uh, Christianity back into France. And so for that reason, he had quite a good relationship with the church. But by 1809, um, he's, it, this had soured, and, um, and, his, uh, and his, his long wars and his depredations, are certainly in Italy, his attempts to, uh, to uh, really... Um, Fine, the uh, papal lands themselves um, led him to being excommunicated by the church, and uh, and by 1809 he actually arrested the pope, and had the pope um, leave Rome and come to live in uh, under house arrest in Fontainebleau um, in France, and so so by that stage very clearly the um, the relations with the Catholic Church had gone very very sour indeed. Wow, that's crazy. Um, did uh, so? How did the, how did the church react to the pope being arrested? Um, well, not well, as you can imagine. It uh, as well as excommunicating um, Napoleon, it uh, ordered that nobody had would have anything should have anything to do with him, um, which of course was impossible. Therefore, for the French, then a profoundly Catholic uh, country to uh, really follow that because it was um, it was deeply antithetical to um, to uh, you know it brought church versus state into pretty uh, pretty harsh um, disalignment as you could imagine very hard very hard for um, for devout um, French Catholics to have to choose between their emperor and their and their uh, pope yeah, yeah. Now, is is this kind of what led to um, his downfall, his exile? No, not really. That um, that was the um, uh, the eighteen twelve campaign in Russia, um, because of the place, the way in which he um, decided to retreat from Moscow in uh, in um, eighteen twelve, choosing the wrong route. He and his army got uh, got stuck in a series of the most terrible blizzards, which uh, decimated his force. And uh, for of the 615,000 men he invaded Russia with in 1812, at the, um, in the, the um, June of 1812, by December 1812 there were only 95,000 left alive. So um, it was a, uh, a completely um, disastrous. Thing, which was the sort of coronary, really, that, uh, that destroyed his empire. Far, far more important than loss of, um, of political support from French Catholics. So, so who who was it that made the decision to uh, take him out of leadership? Uh, well, he himself abdicated in 
April 1814. So um, he had a he was under enormous pressure, of course, to do so. He'd already fought uh, a huge campaign in 1813, which had gone very badly. The one in 1814 had actually gone rather well, although it was a much smaller uh, campaign. But nonetheless, he couldn't prevent the Allies from uh, by the Allies. I mean the um, uh, the, the uh, Russians, of course, but also the Austrians and Prussians, who all came together. And um, uh, meanwhile, the British were fighting in Spain and, and, and captured Spain and uh, entered France from the south. And, uh, and then in August, uh, sorry, in late March 1814, um, the Allies captured Paris. And, and this was the point at which, understandably, um, Napoleon felt he had no, uh, no option but to abdicate for the first time. So when he did, like he, he got exiled to, um, what, St. Helena? No, no. Uh, to Elba, um, he, an island off Italy. He um, was, uh, was exiled there, and uh, he stayed there for eight months. And then after, um, after uh, seeing that the Bourbons, the, uh, the French monarchists, had made such a uh, bad uh, job of ruling France in his absence. He then returned and uh, and marched straight on Paris, took it, um, the Bourbons fled, uh, and then he fought the famous Battle of Waterloo in June 1815 and uh, lost it. And that was the point at which he was exiled to uh, the island of St. Helena. So now, did he still have followers when he got exiled the second time? Was there still people that supported him? He had a few, but um, nobody that, uh, by that stage, uh, that the 100 days, as it's called, which is the number of days between his leaving the island of Elba and, uh, and losing the Battle of Waterloo and being forced to abdicate for the second time, um, 100,000 people have been killed or wounded as a result of that in uh, in Europe, and so his uh, his level of support um, pretty much totally collapsed, and that was the reason, of course, that he was uh, he was forced to um, to surrender to the British, and it was the British who took him to this very um, uh, very cold and unedifying island in the middle of the um, Atlantic Ocean called uh, Saint Helena. How was his life on that island? Like, what what, what kind of life did he have? He was fine for the first um, first year and a half or so, um, when he uh, was in exile. But then, unfortunately, he. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot; we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hold up. 
What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. ...stricken with extremely um, bad cancer. And uh, bad in that it covered all his, uh, his, his, his entire stomach. Um, but not so bad that it killed him immediately. It actually took him another three years to die. And so, um, uh, and they didn't realize it was cancer until, um, until quite a lot later on as well. So between, um, he, he, he got there in 1816 and didn't die until 1821, but, um, but was in, in an extremely bad way for certainly the last two and a half years of his life. So now, when he was there, um, uh, uh, there was a lot of stories, and there's even movies and things that have been made about him escaping from there. Yes, completely impossible. Um, he was guarded by two French, two British frigates, which uh, which circled the island 24 hours a day. He also um, was, uh, as I say, he was suffering from cancer for for quite a lot of uh, the time there. He had no um, no real um, uh, joie de vivre, really. No, no get up and go. He'd led a very adventurous life up until that point, but um, but after the defeat at, at Waterloo, he no longer really had the uh, the interest or the capacity or the wherewithal to escape. There were lots of plots actually um, that uh, that French monarchists came up with, or at least imperialists in this case came up with to and save him but he uh, and, and a few of them actually he w- were presented to him but he uh, turned all of them down it wasn't um, something that 
uh, interested in him. He, he was uh, he was he was sort of really just sort of blown out by that stage, unfortunately for him. It's funny because there's so many rumors about his death and about him escaping the island. Well, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> um, they 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 uh, they had a very um, intensive autopsy um, of him, and uh, he they found uh, his entire stomach completely um, riddled with cancer. There were seven doctors present, and uh, and it was a, uh, a completely open and shut case. There was simply no way that he left that island alive. Yeah. I actually, funny enough, uh, uh, I've, I've read his uh, his autopsy and. Uh, it was a. Um, I mean, it seems extraordinary that anyone can um, doubt for a moment the, the method for his uh, his death. Now, was was Josephine still alive, and did she live with him on the island? No, Josephine had uh, died in 1815 when she when when he was on Elba. Uh, they'd already got divorced in 1810. His new wife, um, the uh, Empress Mary Louise uh, Habsburg of Austria, was the daughter of the Emperor of Austria and so when um, Austria went to war against uh, France and Mary Louise fell into the hands of the Austrians she had a very nice time with her um, with her father and um, she took on a lover called the Graf von Nieperg the Count von Nieperg um, uh, who later after Napoleon died became her husband so she um, uh, so, so he was um, without female company on uh, on Saint Helena, except insofar as he might have had an affair with the Countess Montalon, who was um, the wife of um, of one of his courtiers there. Hmm. So, how do people in France see him now? Like, how is he remembered? Um, it depends on, on where you are in the political spectrum. If you're on the left in France, you, uh, you possibly see him as a, uh, as a monster because he was um, responsible for trying to put down the slaves' revolt in, um, in Santo Domingo, uh, modern-day Haiti, um, and this was done with extreme violence and... Um, and so he's thought of as being as being extremely harsh on the black uh, population of Haiti. Um, also, the Code Napoleon that he imposed, which was the uh, um, the new laws for France, which um, uh, were considered sexist, or indeed today are considered sexist. They weren't at the time particularly. Nonetheless, they put um, a lot of emphasis on the man and the patriarchy, and not on uh, on women having rights. So if you're on the left, you, you also um, presumably think uh, ill of Napoleon for that. Um, and he reintroduced an aristocracy as well. So he, he did have a sort of um, hierarchical structure of society, which, uh, which again, again was, was uh, opposed to the principles of the French Revolution. If you're on the, um, on the right in uh, France, you might admire Napoleon because he did establish meritocracy to a degree. Um, he was somebody who believed in the um, uh, religious toleration and in um, 
sort of free market capitalism to an extent, not internationally, but within France. Um, he was a reformer. He reformed all the weights and measures and, and uh, things like that. He was somebody also who um, made France great again, in that he had, uh, to coin a phrase, he had um, uh, marched through the capitals of pretty much every European country and had uh, won um, six out of his seven wars. So uh, that, or at least certainly five out of his seven wars. And so um, for that reason, he was considered a, 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 a tremendously successful conqueror. He was one of the great generals in, in history. Um, and as well, uh, personally, he was uh, somebody with a great sense of humor. Um, he made lots of jokes. He was, uh, he was somebody who uh, had, uh, was able to discuss um, thoughts and intellectual concepts with Goethe. And uh, and therefore was a uh, figure unlike pretty much any other um, any of an other European monarch um, from Elizabeth the first of England onwards really. So, what do you think the biggest misconception that the general public have about um, Napoleon that you find not to be true? Well, I think the. Um, uh, the biggest one really is that uh, he was some kind of a proto-Hitler figure. You know, because he was a, undoubtedly a dictator, um, people think that, uh, and because he, f he came to grief in Russia, uh, and that was the end of his, um, uh, his empire, rather like uh, it was with Hitler, um, that therefore he had something in common with Hitler. He had nothing whatsoever in common with Hitler. He was a... Uh, and in light, he was the Enlightenment on horseback. He was, as I say, somebody who supported the meritocracy. He liked Jews, got on very well with Jews, uh, and, uh, and admired them. And uh, he really was, um, he really was about as unlike Adolf Hitler as possible. But unfortunately, and I don't think, by the way, that this is a, 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 a feeling that uh, I don't think people equate him with Hitler in Europe terribly much, and they don't really do it in. Um, America at all, but they certainly do here in my country, in England. Oh. Now, w was there something that you were totally surprised with uh, that you found out about his life? Oh, golly. Um, yeah, I think it was his humour, actually. Uh, very often you, one assumes that, um, that great men of history aren't particularly funny, but, um, but there are a good uh, 50 very funny Napoleon jokes in, uh, in my book um i uh, i yes i very much enjoyed um researching his life and reading his letters he wrote 30,000 letters and um you uh, you knew that it was only going to be three or four pages before you came across something amusing and that's always very uh, very pleasing i have to say for a um historian so so what was his relationship like with with other uh leaders Around the world, I mean, obviously there was countries he was he was taking over or fighting with, but how did he do? Yeah, with... those weren't always so great. <laughs> yeah, <I> was... <laughs> um, his his relations with George the Third, actually, funny enough, weren't as bad as they might be. Even though King George the Third, largely, I suppose, because he didn't ever manage to succeed to in, uh, invading England, he admired George Washington enormously. Uh, he, of course, sold um, the Louisiana Purchase to um, Thomas Jefferson. 
but he had thought of he thought very highly of um, of George Washington. Indeed, when Washington died, he insisted that the French court go into I think it was seven days of mourning. They all had to um, had to cancel any any uh, amusements they had and wear black and uh, and 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 mourn um, your first president. Um, he got on well with people like the Shah of Persia and the um, and the um, Sultan of Turkey. He was um, in that sense, and indeed, of course, he married the daughter of the Emperor of Austria. He actually personally got on very well with the Tsar of Russia until he invaded his country, of course. Hmm. Hmm. So, what do you think the um, lasting changes that he he created or he that that he did that's still with us today? Well, the um, the Code Napoleon, this uh, this uh, legal system, uh, shorn now obviously of its uh, of its sexist aspects, but uh, but nonetheless, it's still the underlying law of um, of France, and not just of France actually, of many countries that he um, that he subjugated. Who worked out that it was actually a very good modern um, system of laws. So that still exists very much. Um, the Bridges he he built and uh, across the Seine and lots of other um, beautiful major important um, uh, building uh, works. The Arc de Triomphe, for example, was uh, was put down under his um, under his rule, um, although built by a later government. His um, a, a good deal of the organisation and structure of the European Union and and indeed of France can't really be. Uh, Understood, except in terms of um, of the Napoleonic constructs that he set up. He um, he set up the Légion d'honneur, uh, the great French uh, system of honours, which still exists. The Banque de France, the Bank of France, that still um, exists. The um, Council of State still meets every Wednesday in France. Um, there are plenty of of things that have really stood the test of time, and are still around. Um, uh, 200 years after his death. Whatever happened to his kids? Um, well, not a happy story, really. His uh, his legitimate child, the King of Rome, died at the age of 21 of... Um, um, oh, golly, what's it called? Of, of one of those um, uh, sad um, and, and painful diseases of the, of the day. I'm afraid I've forgotten its name. Mm. Um, and then his uh, and one of his other children lived to uh, into his sixties, and another died of cancer, rather like he had, um, relatively young in his uh, in his fifties. Tuberculosis, tuberculosis. Mm. That was what killed his uh, that was what killed his legitimate son um, in 1832. So it was not a um, it was not a happy story um, with his uh, with his children. There are um, some people who are uh, descended from one of the illegitimate uh, children, in fact, and, uh, and I met one uh, a few years back, and it was absolutely astonishing how much like Napoleon he looked. Uh, his, his, his face, his eyes, his, uh, his, his lips, extremely, uh, he could have just stepped out of a portrait of uh, Napoleon, quite extraordinary after two <laughs> centuries. <laughs> Sitting down with Napoleon, yeah. 
<laughs> what do you think about uh, his depictions in movies and in uh, television stuff? Has anybody really got it right? Is there a movie that you think, wow, this is pretty good? Um, there isn't really. Actually, I once had a discussion with Martin Scorsese about it, precisely this. I, I said to him, why is there no great depiction of Napoleon on screen? Uh, and he said, um, because he's too big for any screen. And I think that might be it. Uh, just the sheer uh, one's one sort of um, feeling, one sense of, of Napoleon is of this uh, enormous figure. Um, he has been captured quite successfully, I think, a couple of times on canvas. Um, there are paintings of him by Lefebvre that are um, extremely good and David. But other than that, actually, um, you know, uh, maybe the Abelgans, um depiction in the 1924 um, movie, Napoleon, one of the first movies, um, uh, really important, successful movies ever made, it's um, other than that, we really are still waiting for a uh, for a really sort of viable, believable Napoleon do on the big screen. Yeah, do you think they're going to do one, or is he going to be too politically incorrect? Well, I've um, I've my my book um, Napoleon and Life has been optioned uh, three times now for TV um, adaptations, and so I'm I'm living in hope that somebody will uh, we've come very close on a couple of occasions so I'm keeping my fingers crossed that uh, some genius is going to come and create something that uh, is finally going to, to sort of lay the ghost to rest and produce a, a, a great Napoleon on the either the big or the small screen hmm. do, you, do you think there's enough interest do you think they'll do it um, it's it's not to do with interest. It's always interest. It's always to do with money. Yeah, <laughs> isn't that the truth? <laughs> it goes goes down to the money. Wow, that's crazy. Well, this has been interesting. What are you, what are you working on now? I'm working on King George the Third, um, actually. And since having written that uh, book on Napoleon, I wrote a uh, a big book on Churchill called Churchill Walking with Destiny, which uh, I've in fact. Um, uh, been uh, publicising uh, indeed in uh, Oregon um, a few months ago, and uh, in 18 states of the of the um, United States, and uh, that is uh, that's taking up quite a lot of time. Just going around giving speeches and talks about um, about Winston Churchill, and uh, and then when finally I've uh, finished that later on this year, I'm going to be concentrating on a uh, full-scale biography of your last king. Uh, King George the Third. Just fascinating. Well, it's always a pleasure to have you on. We'll have your book up on our website as well for one click, as well as the Churchill one. Um, any any contact information for people? Um, it's all on my website, uh, www.andrew-roberts. Sorry, that's andrew-roberts.net. Uh, well, fantastic. Thank you for being here, Andrew. Well, that's very kind of you, Al. I've really enjoyed it. Bye-bye. To find out more about our show, guests, or to listen to past shows from our archive, please go to www.houseofmysteryradio.com. Show's over for now. Was it as good for you as it was for me? Well, good night. This has been a production of Something Weird Media. I'll be back. 
Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. You've been listening to the House of Mystery radio show. To find out more about our guests, hosts, or shows, go to www.houseofmystery.com. Show is over for now. Was it as good for you as it was for me? Well, good night. This has been a production of Something Weird Media. I'll be back.